This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone. Welcome to World to Win. It's great to be back after a few weeks uh, of not being here. And uh, we are very excited to uh, see another host. So really excited about that. But uh, today, my co-host is going to be Toya. So how are you doing, Toya? Good to see you again, Yar. We missed you the past few weeks, but I'm glad you're back. Yeah, I'm very glad to be back, even though it's been super busy. What have you been up to? Oh, you know, same old working, waiting for the, of course, we have to talk about the weather, waiting for the rain to finally bring spring. Um, but this weekend, I'm I'm going to the casino, so wish me, wish me luck. It's my bachelorette party, Yara, so hopefully oh I win God. on a little bit of roulette. Well, you know, I'm sure that you'll bring luck and also donate some of your uh, of your winning uh, to the party, obviously. Um, but yeah, I actually wasn't here uh, a couple of weeks ago because I was uh, visiting uh, our conference in uh, of our organization of the International Socialist Alternative in Ireland, which has been really good and really interesting. So uh, shout out to everyone who was there, who was watching. Uh, it was really good. And... I'm looking forward to our England, Wales and Scotland Congress that's going to happen in a couple of weeks as well. So uh, obviously a lot of work uh, getting into that, but that's great. And, you know, today we're actually talking about a subject that I'm sure that you know a lot more about than me, uh, because we're talking about the situation in the US in particular with kind of like the anti-trans, anti-gay laws. It kind of, you know, I, I stopped following, to be honest. There's been so many constantly uh, it seems like every state is gonna is, is coming up with a new one, and it also seems like there hasn't been much uh, coming from the Democratic Party to oppose it, which is unsurprising to some like us, but I think uh, could be quite surprising to uh, a lot of people who voted for Biden because he was presented as an alternative to the you know horrible Trump uh, kind of uh, uh, approach. So. Uh, we're going to have three speakers today. We're going to have Emerson. How are you doing, Emerson? What have you been up to? Hey, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Emerson. Uh, my pronouns are he, him. Um, I've been, uh, my partner and I just bought a house. So we have been in the process of unpacking and get, getting everything um, set up, learning that we really don't know a lot about house maintenance. So that's super exciting. Um, but it's really nice to be settled in. Lots of YouTube tutorials, Emerson. That is really exciting. I'm, I'm also looking for a flat, so I, I am with you on the, the whole uh, headache that that is. So really exciting to see that you are uh, settling in. And we also have Marie, who's been on the show before. How are you doing, Marie? Hey, I'm doing great. It's really good to be back. Yeah, what have you been up to? Um, yeah, so I've been back in I've been back in the states for a couple months. Now I was I was I was out in Europe, but now um, there's just a whole wave of like really awesome stuff happening in the labor movement right now. We just had here in New York, we just had um, obviously the first unionized Amazon warehouse in the country, which is massive. Um, and so we've just been doing a lot of stuff, uh, really trying to take advantage of this key moment and like the labor movement here through like um, you know our members in New York like fighting union busting at Starbucks. We had like this huge intervention, uh, this huge like sort of like um, you know kind of like community protest to bust up like a, a captive audience meeting some Starbucks workers were in contact with had. So it's been really just great stuff happening all around. 
That sounds so kind of amazing and exciting to be around there. And obviously, if you haven't checked it already, we have an episode in the Starbucks unionization. It's a really good episode, so you should check that out as well. Uh, and we also have Graciela here. So how are you doing? What have you been up to? Hi, I'm all right. Thanks for having me. Um, I've been training for some track meets and also uh, talking to some fellow students about potentially um, having a walkout in support of abortion rights. So that's what I've been doing. I mean, that is super important. And I feel like uh, we're all looking to see what's happening with all of these kind of struggles in the US, which is going to be really uh, interesting to talk about today. Because as I said, I can't follow anymore. There's been so many, you know, I think that uh, since 2020, which uh, feels maybe like ages ago, but actually hasn't been, there's been over 100 bills targeting uh, uh, queer uh, youth, particularly uh, trans youth as well. And I was wondering, Marie, if you can give us a brief kind of explanation of the most recent ones, like the recent attacks that we're seeing, uh, especially in the Republican-led states, because I, I, I'm confused. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely, Yara, and I completely understand what you are saying earlier about how there's just like so many, it can be like a bit like gut-wrenching, I think sometimes to follow, you know, there's been just like, a sort of unprecedented just wave of anti-trans especially bills, but bills in general against like queer people as part of this like huge right-wing assault against, they were also sitting against, you know, abortion, for example. Um, and literally like, I mean, I know last year in Tennessee, there were just so many bills coming in trying to attack the rights of trans people that like they had literally what they called like the slate of hate, which was just like, a mass of like anti-trans legislation trying to go through. Um, but very recently, like the two things that are sort of just like blasting in the news are in Texas, uh, Governor Greg Abbott um, put out an order basically saying that like if trans children, like if, trans, if parents of trans children seek out health care for their children, gender affirming care for their children, that um, people are supposed to now report them to like essentially, I forget exactly what they call it in a text, essentially like the child protective services that they need to like investigate this child abuse, right? Um, uh, kids who, you know, trans children are often in positions of not being able to seek out care, let alone have supportive families. And so for those who like aren't as isolated as that, right? Those who have parents that are actually like willing to go seek out like what, unfortunately already inadequate care there is for trans children that they're not being attacked as sort of being like these uh, it's being framed as sort of like an attack on our children right and these really just like far right like really uh, uh um uh, damaging talking points and then so there's there's been that happening um and then in florida uh what just recently got signed into law was the uh, by the governor was the don't say gay bill which takes effect in july um which is this attack on uh not only trans uh trans students and trans youth but also and queer youth in general you know trans and gay uh youth but also on their on their teachers, on their on you know social workers in the schools, which essentially says that like it's you know age inappropriate to talk about you know sexuality in this way, you know as if like your teacher talking about their husband, you know if it's like a heteronormative relationship, you know that's that that's okay. But uh, if a, if a teacher is speaking about, for example, like you know um, uh, being gay, uh, anything to do with you know. Uh, uh, queerness, basically, um, that they can then be reported and, um, uh, you know, serious action can be taken against them. And it's, it's an attack not just on, on trans youth, but also on, um, on their teachers. And it also puts a special, like, 
sort of pressure also on what should be authority figures for tra for trans and queer youth and gay youth, which is, um, you know, on counselors, on teachers, on on doctors to sort of report these things, right? This, this is something that we're seeing uh, taking place in a lot of these states where these where these measures are taking are are sort of being put into to action. Thanks, Marie. Yeah, these bills are absolutely insane. I mean, imagine having you know a first grade classroom and uh, you're reading a story and one of the children says, "I have two dads," and then another student asks about that and the teacher can't have actually a really good lesson on what different types of families look like. Um, it's really sad that we're seeing in you know 2022 that we're actually censoring um, these types of discussions that are important to build healthy um, um, children, um, you know, and, and build healthy relationships, talk about their feelings, etc. But Marie, it's like, uh, you know, it's kind of confusing because it, it, I don't know, it seems like a lot of people are actually against um, these types of measures. Why do you think this is happening? Do the, you know, the Republicans that are putting this forward, like, what is their, what, what's their end goal? What, what, what's their interest? Why are they um, so heavy on pushing forward this type of legislation? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's really, um, you know, it's pretty horrible. And the fact is, is like, this is not right. This is something that's really, it's coming in the context also of these attacks we're seeing nationally on Roe v. Wade, for example, right? It's all part of the sort of like process that's happening in society, right? Where there's this, there's this deep like mistrust in the system. Um, there's this like serious polarization that's happening in society and what's happening. And also out of like the Trump administration, for example, what you saw is this really like sort of like far right rhetoric that's like really gained a lot of ground um, in the Republican Party and has really sort of become a dominant feature of, of right wing conservatism, where even these more traditional Republican politicians um, are are sort of being um, put in a position of, you know, as like midterms come up, as Republican primaries come up, as they see new challenges in the party, really appealing to this Trump base of these angry people who are, you know, discontented, who are, you know, insecure about the future, who have put this mistrust in the system and have had right-wing figures step into the place of what should be the place of working class parties, right? To say that like, they're against the system, right? That they want to like, you know, drain the swamp as was like the term during the Trump administration. Uh, and what's happening is to, to appeal to this crowd, what they're really doing is doubling down, on, you know, attacks by conservatives on, you know, the rights of immigrants, on the rights of, um, of gay and trans people, on the rights of women, right? These are not new, right? These are these are inherent to our system, right? But they're, they're especially doubling down that as society, um, you know, uh, uh, is further divided in these camps where like, in some cases you see like huge unionization waves, right? You see people moving into struggle. You see people, you see more people than ever being drawn to socialist ideas. And then you also see another side where 2021, for example, is the worst year on record for trans hate crimes. Um, and in order to shore up, in order to shore up their right-wing base, uh, in order to shore that up, right? This is sort of a legislative um, side to to that you know statistic about hate crimes and violence and and murders against trans people in order to really you know sh you just um you know seize on their on their voter base yeah you know it's something that's always been really kind of interesting to me about kind of the u.s because i feel like it's presented in the west and in the media as this like you know beacon of hope kind of progressive uh super 
uh, you know, world power, really, that is so rich and powerful. But then at the same time, we're seeing what is basically the opposite of that constantly attacks on black people, attacks on trans people, uh, queer people generally, women all the time in a way that's like basically the opposite of progressive, right? So I'm wondering why is that? Like, why is it that this world power, which is presented as kind of the future, the way that everything should be, is so regressive and going back and attacking the rights of people? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, what it ultimately comes down to, I think, is just the nature of the of the capitalist system, which I mean, through all of, I mean, if we're going to talk about attacks on queer people, if we're going to talk about attacks on black people in America, right, these are not absolutely not new things, right? This is this has been something that's been baked into the history of America, uh, you know, since its inception, um, precisely because of the need of the ruling class in society to sort of put forward this divide and rule strategy over over working class people. Uh, I think why specifically this has become such a such a feature of of, of the political landscape right now um, is again because the past few years like look what we're seeing right is we've just gone through this horrible pandemic right I, throughout this whole process through the with the war in Ukraine with inflation on the rise with people not being able to pay their bills with people constantly worrying like are they going to like restart um, you know, student loan payments this month, right? How am I going to afford this, right? There's been these deep, deep cracks in the capitalist system that have been showing to uh, um, to everybody, right? People understand that there's a problem inherently with the system that we live in. Um, and for, um, you know, and we need to be clear that the working class is not moving to the right, right? The, the, the Republican Party and the far right elements in general have really been taking advantage of this distrust in the system, which the Democratic Party has been completely out of step with being willing to deal with, right? Because they can only, they can't keep up with like the, the thirst in society for something more, right? Because they don't want to, it doesn't pertain to their interests, which their interests are fully on the side of, you know, corporate America, capitalist America, right? Um, uh, they, they can't present like a really serious challenge for, um, for queer rights. They can't present a very serious challenge for workers' rights, right? And in some cases in society, what you see is like people realizing that, people realizing that this is not, this is not the party of the working people, right? That's something that still has to be built. And so in a lot of cases, people are actually moving into positive action, you know, and in, in, in a way, in the, all this is happening right now, in a way, this is like, well, you know, for example, trans healthcare is so inadequate, like in a way, like this has been the best time in U.S. history to live as a trans person in certain in certain respects, in certain respects of like access to actual like advanced, you know, healthcare. Um, on the other hand, at the same time, right, with this thing in society that in some ways has led certain segments of people into into, you know, positive action of really trying to fight for like these like huge like union waves. You also have a, a, a section of people that are just discontented. With what we live in you have middle class layers of society who are now worse off than they were before who don't have the same quality of life that they did throughout much of the 20th century and uh in order to sort of shore shore up their like right-wing conservative agenda what the republican party is doing and what far-right conservatives are doing in general is um uh um you know really seizing on that anger in society and really putting forward this idea that like, look, your problem isn't the capitalist system, right? Your problem isn't that you need to like put uh, um, uh, better conditions in the work, you know, you fight for better conditions in the workplace, right? The problem is, is that these people are like attacking like 
the traditional American values. They're attacking, you know, they're turning our kids transgender, right? They're, they're trans girls are joining, are joining like sports teams and, uh, you know, really attacking like girls and women in society, right? You have to fear them in the bathroom. Well, at the same time, these same people are attacking the rights of women to, and pregnant people to like seek out abortions, right? So it's completely hypocritical, right? It's just, it's just this complete, whatever they can do to shore up this hateful base. Um, that's growing in society at the same time that, you know, more positive elements are also growing. Yeah. And, you know, I think we talked a lot about, like, obviously the Republican Party and especially because most of these bills are coming from uh, Republican states. But at the same time, the situation in the U.S. right now is that there is uh, a Democratic uh, 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 leader of the, 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 the whole kind of United States. So I was wondering, Emerson, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what the Democratic Party is actually doing? Is like is the resistance going to come from the Democratic Party to block these uh, uh, individual states' laws? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think that um, it is correct for us to you know lay the brunt of the fall um, for these attacks. Um, at the feet of the Republicans. Um, they were the ones who introduced the bills and have been for years, you know, whipping up these completely false ideas that being trans is a contagion and that if we acknowledge trans people, that will spread the contagion. And then using that same excuse to sort of claw back the rights of um, queer people and women as well. Um, but the thing is, like, that isn't any sort of like new or unique tactic. Like Marie was saying, like, that's something that they always do, right? You find a, ch- a scapegoat in society um, and then you use it as the basis to claw back other people's, um, you know, gains in the same way that we saw that with immigrant workers being used as the basis to lower um, uh, wages across the working class. Um, But I do think like Democrats, like they know this game, they should be able to address it and they have it right. They continue to do what they always do, which is pay lip service um, to the trans and queer community with tweets and speeches. But I think the thing is like words don't mean anything if there isn't any action behind them i think people are like genuine i know i'm genuinely frustrated by it but it's not just me right it's not just socialists it's reflected in the incredibly low approval ratings um that biden's getting right now but i think that it's remarkable too that like we're not just seeing it from um you know the people that we settled to vote for like biden and kamala harris right we're seeing it from the progressive wing of the democratic party and the squad who claims to be you know the cutting edge the one who's going to represent marginal communities and that they lack a, a real or even substantial proposal about how we actually mount a fight against these attacks, right? Like, what is the purpose of them um, claiming to be the progressive wing if they're not even going to fight around the demands that we need? And I think that there's just like, in general, a lack of leadership um, from politicians and established human rights organizations around these issues right now. Um If they wanted to, you know, the human rights campaign could mobilize massive protests against what are, you know, wildly unpopular um, bills right now. But they haven't. And we have to ask ourselves why that is. Um, And I think, you know, the conclusion that a lot of people draw um, out of this is that, like, these attacks are inevitable and there's nothing we can do about it. Because if these major organizations and these politicians aren't doing anything, what can I as an individual do? Um, and I think that history has just shown us that that isn't true, right? That there are plenty of examples of ordinary people um, showing up and fighting back against um, attacks like this. I think for me, like, one of the most inspiring things that radicalized me as a young person was learning about the ACT UP 
movement in the 90s, um, which was able to defeat, you know, essentially a media and political blackout um, on talking about the issue of HIV and AIDS, right? And they did that by doing mass direct actions of working class uh, queers and allies, right? That the that couldn't be ignored. Um, and these were not organized by, um, you know, some nonprofit. These were democratically run um, uh, protests that had structures and discussion and debate about the best way uh, to bring the movement forward. Um, and I think as much as the Democratic Party and Supreme Court would also like to claim responsibility for the passage of marriage equality, like, it's just not true. It would never have been possible without the massive pressure and organizing from working class people that forced um, the establishment to concede on that issue. And I think these movements didn't wait around for the establishment to catch up. And I think that that's sort of like a lesson that we all need to learn right now. It's really key that, um, you know, we need to look at how um, these gains were able to be won, but they've also been clawed back too. And in order to prevent that, we need a sustained movement, right? We need to bring back the tactics, um, you know, the direct action tactics of the 90s um, and have, you know, a clear revolutionary leadership um, that fights, uh, you know, for the struggles of queer and trans people, but also links them up with the broader fights facing the working class and people under capitalism today. Thanks, Emerson. It's nice to hear, you know, some inspiring examples of um, you know, throughout history that we've seen successfully push the movement forward. But you mentioned in your response a little bit about representation. And so I wanted to shift a little bit and talk about the Supreme Court nomination. Um, you know, there have been an insane number of uh, clips showing the, uh, I don't know what they call it, you know, the, it looks like a court basically the interrogation process to try to choose the next Supreme Court justice, because in the U.S., um, you know, the Supreme Court, which is the highest court, um, you know, uh, they're appointed, they're not elected. And so the senators get to go through all these questionings. And, you know, the Republicans are asking these insane questions, um, you know, to really do what Marie said and kind of rile up their base on questions of, um, you know, uh, on questions of, um, yeah, homosexuality, on questions of um, race, critical race theory. There's that famous uh, line where Ted Cruz said, do you think babies are racist? You know, all of these insane questions that they're asking this woman. Um, and, you know, Biden is going to get credit uh, for nominating the first black woman, you know, potentially if she um, is nominated to be on the Supreme Court. So, you know, especially for people who are living outside of the U.S. who may have seen some of these uh, videos of this process, can you explain how the Supreme Court works and kind of what their role is um, in, in the United States? Yeah, the Supreme Court is like a really, I don't know, it, it feels uniquely American to me or like, I, I don't know, just feels very American to me as someone who lives in the U.S. And that like, yeah, the Supreme Court is seen as like the highest judicial body and it's tasked with this, you know, amazing job of being able to make unbiased rulings on the most contentious cases, which when you say that out loud, it's like, there's no way that you can make an unbiased ruling on the most contentious cases. Um, and especially when you don't have people who are democratically elected, right? There are people who 
um, the establishment is appointing to office. So that also means that there's like a political agenda going into who they're even choosing to be in this position in the first place. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing is these judges get to hear what they choose. Um, so it's not as though like it's just like any case that comes before them. No, they get to pick and choose based on their political agenda, like what cases that they want to hear and debate upon. Um, and they've had, you know, a massive impact on the lives of American people, um, like with the ruling on Citizens United that just like opened the door for unprecedented and unlimited um, corporate spending in elections or with Roe v. Wade, right, which was, you know, supposed to ostensibly enshrine the women's right to abortion. But we see in reality that there's all these sort of like loopholes that have been found by the states to um, get around it. So I think, yeah, it's a it's kind of a complicated body to deal with. And I think Marxists have like a lot of criticisms about how you might talk about um, the Supreme Court and how it functions. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about it because obviously the Supreme Court is something that's very alien to me as someone who's not from the US. But I think generally the court system, there's this kind of perception that is uh, the, I think that has been really pushed, especially like, you know, in schools and uh, generally by the ideology of the state, that this the the courts are there to protect working class people. They're there no, no, beyond politics, no matter what the members of parliament or Congress or whatever system you live in, uh, they're there to uh, kind of take away the politics and give an objective, moral, ethical answer to all of our, our questions and problems and issues. And I think that the, the, the kind of the Supreme Court in the US is a glaring kind of example of how that's not the case. So I was wondering, Emerson, if you can explain to us a little bit about what kind of the Marxist approach to the court system is uh, through this. Yeah, I think this is a really um, interesting question because I think the reality is that like across the board, right, people would agree that the justice system is broken, yet somehow there's also this idea that the Supreme Court is going to like, yeah, be able to have um, yeah, this like removed um, standpoint on things. And I think the, the reality is like, I, I think I touched on it a little bit before, but like, that's just not possible. You can't have a apolitical force um, when they're making choices about what cases to see. Like that's fundamentally a choice, right? But it's also like, there's no secret that these judges have a political agenda. Like they don't even try and hide it. Biden wouldn't be using the terminology of rebalancing the courts with the appointment of Judge Jackson if that were the case, right? And I think even too, like recent reporting has come out about how Clarence Thomas, who's a, a long-term uh, judge on the Supreme Court, has been working with his life for a really, wife for a really long time to try and push his right-wing agenda, both inside the courtroom, but also like in the broader Republican party um and like yeah nobody taught nobody addresses like how this is a conflict of interest right like how you can't make um an unbiased um argument if this is happening and it's just it, yeah it's just completely absurd to think that an elected body of individuals appointed by the political establishment is somehow supposed to you know rule on the most important issues facing working class people but i think like as much as the supreme court isn't immune to like the political forces that exist like within the political establishment they're also not immune to the forces of the working class right and I think that this is like best 
sort of shown and what happened with Roe v. Wade, because Roe v. Wade was one under Nixon, right, who is a notorious conservative president. It was also one um, when the Supreme Court had like sort of a conservative balance um, like it does right now, which I think is important for us to note, is that like this was possible because there was enormous uh, uh, fight back on the ground, right? They didn't accept that just because the uh, – the courts were stacked against them or because uh, the White House was stacked against them that they couldn't fight for um, the right to choose, right? And I think that we need to take up a similar approach now of saying like, okay, if, the, if you know, if we all accept, right, the reality that these are not um, apolitical forces, then we should put the political pressure on them. We shouldn't just let the, um, you know, the Democratic and Republican Party um, be the ones who decide what happens on the Supreme Court. It should be up to working people because um, fundamentally we reserve, you know, we deserve representation in these halls of power. Um, right now, we're not going to get that under capitalism, but we can get it through like serious organizing. Um, and I think too, like the question of like having a black, um, you know, woman as a Supreme Court justice, like, yeah, it's significant. Um, and like, I think it is something that should like be celebrated to the degree that like, we haven't had that before. And that is a significant step forward, but it also doesn't like automatically result in the liberation, um, of oppressed people. Like I think AOC is a great example of this, right? Like, just because um, she's a woman of color doesn't mean that she has fought unapologetically every step of the way for um, other women of color in office, right? So I don't think that we should just like sit back and rely on Judge Jackson to be like the sole bastion for oppressed people. Um, we need to organize independent movements, you know, that force the courts to rule in our favor rather than just sort of like, yeah, waiting for, I don't know, playing catch up or whatever, which I think is sort of unfortunately the approach of like the establishment and um, these like major political organizations right now. Thanks, Emerson. So I want to actually talk to our third guest here today. Graciela, we haven't had a chance to hear from you. Um, you are yourself a high school student. And so, you know, you, your classmates, your friends, you are the people who are actually experiencing these attacks firsthand. Um, but there has been, you know, we've talked a lot about what is needed to fight back against this. You know, Emerson said that it's not the Supreme Court um, that's going to do this for, for us. It's not the Republican Party. I mean, definitely not the Republican Party, but it's not the Democratic Party that's going to do it for us. Um, but students across the country have been fighting back against these attacks. And not just in red states, you know, in states uh, that are run by Democrats, students are fighting back as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what your classmates are saying about these, you know, uh, attacks on uh, trans students and how it's affecting young people in general? Yeah, there's a lot of anger um, from my peers and I, I think young people uh, more generally about these attacks. Um, and as a result, a lot of disillusionment and the government um, and the two-party system um, who are very evidently failing um, to protect youth, uh, particularly the Democrats who have done a little else than pay some lip service and done especially little in terms of materially um, helping trans youth. So in response, we've seen uh, mass walkouts um, in Florida, where the Don't Say Gay bill was passed um, on campuses, there were walkouts of hundreds of kids, but it's not just limited to Florida. Um in the city where I live, Pittsburgh, um, there is a demonstration against the ramifications of the Don't See Gay Bill and other um, attacks on queer youth, particularly um, focusing on the uh, ramifications that this will have and, and this ty these types of attacks will have on um, queer youth of color. Um, so, yeah. And 
I think like recently um, youth, particularly young women, um, youth of color, young queer youth um, have like vocally stood against um, oppression and um, ideologies that have divided the working class. Um, and that, that has taken the form of the BLM movement. Um, since returning to in-person learning, um, a lot of students have staged walkouts against sexual harassment. Um, so youth are clearly not afraid um, to make themselves heard um, and to fight for what they believe in um, and just taking uh, any sort of action. Um, and I think that these student demonstrations are really important um, and seeing progress. Um, so I think moving forward, students could connect these struggles against racism, against misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, um, because they're all, you know, products of capitalism. Um, they're all baked into this legislation um, by the um, political establishment. So I think um, we need to build a mass movement um, against all of these forms of oppression and maybe push back against some of the disillusionment um, in mass movements, which I think is present following all of the protests that happened in the summer of 2020, um, like BLM protests, which um, failed um, to win some material gains. We should push back against this and make it clear that uh, mass movements uh, are the most effective way of um, getting victories for youth, for the working class. Um, so an important part of this would be taking up demands, um, taking up demands for more inclusive education, um, which is a problem that a lot of students see, um, more funding um, to broaden the scope of education more generally, um, and also to hire more um, teachers of color um, and to retain those teachers of color. Um, so I think what students can do is they can, can um, organize uh, student unions and approach their existing um, teachers unions or their teachers um, and support them. Um, recently in Pennsylvania and Central York, uh, a group of students um, stood with their teachers against uh, a book ban, which uh, book bans have been more prevalent as these attacks have intensified. Um, and, you know, um, these book bans generally center um, on banning author, uh, banning books by um, queer authors of color. Um, one of the books, I've read a couple of books um, that have been listed on these book bans, and um, one of the ones I've read most, most recently was called um, The Last Night at the Telegraph Club, which is about a young Chinese American, a woman living during um, the Red Scare era, and it was a really great book, and I, you know I would recommend that. Um, and so students should really stand with with their teachers um, in opposing things like these book bans. Thanks, Graciela. Yeah, I think that's super important, and you know, uh, linking up with different student groups and teachers unions, I think, is a great first step for people who do want to fight back. Um, you know, taking up the the question of access of uh, to abortion, like you're doing in your school, I think, is another another great example of this. Um, I want to switch a little bit, still talking about what's going on in our in our school systems. Um, you know, you mentioned in the beginning of the show that you're an athlete. Uh, so I'm curious what your take is on this. People may have seen, uh, you know, uh, recently the 
attacks from uh, the media about um, college swimmer Leah Thomas, who's a, a trans um, woman who was participating in the NCAA tournaments. And we're seeing this whole side of attacks against uh, specifically trans girls playing trans sports. And there are a lot of governors who are banning them. There are even some Republican governors who are vetoing this type of legislation, which to me is a little interesting. Um, but, you know, another discussion for another time. I think what's important for us here, though, Graciela, is to talk about and, and this is what I'm curious about your take is how can we uh, truly fight for trans people to be able to safely participate in sports, which we know is something uh, so important um, for young people? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, we should look to solidarity and struggle um, surrounding the sports uh, world. Um, with things like uh, the players who have stood in solidarity with the BLM movement since Colin Kaepernick um, in support of other um, black athletes um, and, and look to the solidarity as a tool that we could use um, to make sports more inclusive generally. Um, because like the fight for inclusivity in sports encompasses um, fighting against discrimination, um, and which is like a prevalent um, uh, thing in sports most recently or recently I think in the NFL Brian Flores um uh sorry hold on um okay I forgot what that example is I'm going to move to another example okay um recently Shakari Richardson um qualified to be an Olympic athlete um but was then tested and uh, tested positive for marijuana use um but then a Russian uh uh, skater, ice skater, um, got to compete in the Olympics and, and she was also found to have been using drugs. So this is just like a clear example of racial discrimination that is so prevalent in sports. Um, and you know, it's important to recognize the immense amount of money that these professional and collegiate level leagues make off of, um, their athletes. Um, and so it should be their job to, uh, make these sports, uh, more inclusive for all players. Um, and this goes as well for, for school sports. Um, I know that there, there are usually gendered, um, competitions in schools um but you know not everybody um is part of that gender binary and so i think like this is another thing that needs to be addressed is just uh making sports inclusive for non-binary players as well as uh trans women um and just everyone and i think like the right often uses this rhetoric of personal liberties um to attack trans women and to attract uh to attack trans youth um but uh, i think that um, like it's important for cis and trans women to stand together um, against these attacks and, and fight against things like um, women, women's leagues often being paid less than men's leagues. Um, and so this like solidarity again is a really important tool, I think. Um, another point is alone without a movement, um, taking these struggles uh, into the courts and pursuing uh, inclusivity in sports through purely legalistic means um, can only go so far um, and won't bring about the type of change that um, young trans athletes deserve. Um, we need to see um, pressure. We need to see like a movement of people, solidarity among athletes um, demanding changes in their profession. And that's like what will achieve this inclusivity. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Graciela. I think this is really good and really also inspiring, I think, to hear about what 
uh, students in your school are doing and I think like it's it's kind of like a wave as well of uh, school students being outraged by uh, these new uh, bills and I think it kind of proves the point that we consistently make when we talk about these issues that you know uh, fighting back against issues whether it's you know women's issues or queer issues or racial issues all of these things are not dividing the movement they're creating a movement they are a base to fight back against a system that con con continuously perpetuates these divisions and it's not just the role of us as socialists to point the finger at the issues but it's also something that ordinary working class people in schools, in, uh, in you know, workplaces are willing to, you know, take up and fight against and uh, come in solidarity with their co-workers and with their uh, uh, fellow students, which I think is really uh, good to see kind of, and obviously that building this movement is incredibly important. And talking about building this movement, uh, I wanted to kind of shift to Marie because uh, we talked in our recent episode about uh, the Starbucks kind of uh, movement uh, that one of the uh, the demands is actually getting trans healthcare from day one, uh, and that's part of you know the massive movement uh, with Starbucks uh, fighting against uh, the the poor conditions. So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what you think kind of the labor movement's role is in this uh, in, in this fight against these bills and in the fight against you know the oppression of queer people generally. Um, yeah, I think the, the labor movement has like a very important role to play um, in this. I think, you know, as we've already sort of spoken about um, the role the student walkouts can play is, yeah, I think Emerson brought up a, a, an important example of, um, of AIDS activism in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, games that have been won for queer people in general and for queer youth for you know, whoever has been, these are things that have been won through struggle and have been won through movement. And I think especially at this time, I mean, we can sort of look to what happened recently in regards to the Don't Say Gay bill, um, which is that Disney workers in Florida actually staged a walkout um, in protest of Don't Say Gay. Um, and I think this was just a wonderful example of, of something that needs to be happening on a much larger scale because workers in, in, in capitalist society have a really essential role to play um, in terms of any, any reform, any, any, any gain for working people, any gain for oppressed people. Um, uh, is going to be one through united action that is often going to have to to require like the serious tools that we as working class people have at our disposal such as you know strike action such as like i think you know with um with uh teachers unions for example in florida right now i think that i think that they have a serious role to play and obviously it's understandable that in terms of resisting um uh what is a, an attack uh targeting right targeting queer youth through targeting um, uh, teachers and, and affecting the rights of teachers uh, in terms of what they can talk about the workplace and attacking queer teachers as well who can't even talk about their own lives, right? That um, uh, I think understandably in terms of like resisting that, there, there can be a bit of a fear of like retaliation, of a fear of like, you know, maybe being fired for, for non-compliance. But I think what teachers unions can do in this situation linked to um, student organizing that's also happening um, is sort of uh, uh, um, take a take a stance against this in terms of you know organizing in a sort of non-compliance, right? Say so the, the 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 rules that are being passed only have as much legitimacy at, for the ruling class as the working class is willing to allow. 
And by fighting back against that, we can, you know, completely undermine the, the attacks that they're putting against us. Um, you know, non-compliance. I think if there are illegal firings, if there are, I mean, if there are firings for people for non-complying, that like these should be taken up by the entire like teachers union, right? In that in that school district, right? That like you know, the school should be shut down. Honestly, if 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 they're going to attack the rights of teachers in terms of what they can talk about in their workplace, that we should say an injury to one is an injury to all and no teacher should be going into school the next day, right? That, that, that there should be very serious consequences that the ruling class is gonna see if they're going to take this approach. Um, and I think, you know, just in general in society in terms of attacking these sorts of like hateful legislations and in ter terms of really like entrenching the rights, for example, like in, in Texas where they're attacking the, the right to access trans healthcare, right? In terms of really enshrining, um, uh, the right to access healthcare. I think the labor movement in general, um, uh, just in that regard, has a really powerful role to play. And as we see, like the first unionized Amazon warehouse, right, which will hopefully turn into many, many more unionized Amazon warehouses, right? As we see coffee workers who are largely, you know, young queer people um, moving into struggle, organizing the workplace, taking on one of the biggest corporations um, uh, in the U.S. That you know, in both of these, in both Amazon and in Starbucks, people have said like for years, these places can't be organized, that these workers are taking this on. And now, you know, as we've seen uh, coffee workers at Starbucks, you know, sort of take this on as a demand that like we need trans healthcare from day one, right? We can extend this through coordinated days of action as a fight for a broader fight for uh, gender affirming healthcare in society, right? That we need Medicare for all, right? We can't rely on the capitalist system um, to afford us any of these rights. And certainly we can't rely on it for access for anybody to adequate healthcare, right? So we can extend this to a fight for Medicare for all for, um, you know, that, that really sees, for example, uh, the right to gender affirming healthcare or the right to abortion access as, you know, just non-negotiable aspects of what that system looks like. Um, and, uh, you know, this is just the, uh, a clear way to be able to fight against these right-wing attacks. Thanks so much, Marie. I totally agree. I like the examples that you gave of how teachers can actually fight back. And the way you put it, I think was interesting. I, I'm gonna misquote you, but basically, you know, you can, what, the, what the capitalists do is only so legitimate as we allow it to be legitimate. You know, we should really fight back against uh, these unfair firings of teachers or these forced um, mandates of, you know, uh, therapists, teachers, you know, child protective services, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, when, when unions, come together, that's the, the uh, you know, that's the, a show of, of their, their greatest power. They have the ability to unite a workforce um, uh, against something specific, um, uh, you know, to fight these attacks, for example, striking, et cetera. Um, and Marie talked about the role that, you know, capitalism plays in these sorts of attacks in the beginning of the episode um, and how, you know, a movement building approach is what we needed. Graciela touched on this too. Um, but Emerson, I, I, I want to ask because, you know, we're, we're like we discussed, it's not the Supreme Court, it's not the de Democrats, we have to build a movement to fight back. But like, do we just constantly have to be on the defense from these attacks from the Republicans? Because I mean, they're literally linking bills that are attacking abortion, um, attacking the rights of, of queer people and voting rights all at the same time. Are we just in this constant stage of defense? 
Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question for us to ask because I think like the biggest danger is to become pessimistic and then demoralized and not fight back, right? Um, and I think as Marxists, we have to have um, a certain amount of optimism in a time when it can be difficult to be optimistic. Um, and I just want to say that Marie, what you said made me feel really optimistic. I'm a healthcare worker. I'm going to go into my work tomorrow. I'm going to say, if um, a bill like this gets passed, will you not come to work um, with me if, if somebody tries to get fired? I just I think that's totally brilliant um, in a really concrete way that we can fight back. Um, and I think it's important that we talk about this because um, you know we have to highlight the role that labor plays in these fights because I think actually like the basis for homophobia and transphobia actually relates a lot back to the exploitation of labor. Um, and I think like it's important for us to not just point to um, like homophobia and transphobia is happening, but understand why it happens. Because I think being able to understand where it comes from is then how we approach how we fight it, right? Um, so like a phrase that I hear a lot is gender is a social construct, right? But we need to ask ourselves, you know, what purpose does that construct serve? Um, and I think that Marxists argue um, correctly that trans oppression comes from the same place that women's oppression comes from. That's why we link this up so much, um, which is the necessity of the division of labor under capitalism. And, you know, capitalism tries to divide people into two categories, right? They say men and women, and you subject men and women to different forms of exploitation based on the inherent roles that capitalism, you know, claims is related to their sex, right? You know, men are required to go out and sell their labor power, um, which, you know, then turns into profit for a bunch of, they're not even a bunch, a few guys. Um, and then women are forced to um, do domestic and low-wage work um, as a way to maintain the family structure and, again, increase profits for, you know, a very small section of people. Um, and not only is, like, the division of um, gender into these two, like, very, uh, yeah, just like stark categories been shown to be like biologically incorrect. The roles that are assigned um, with it are also false. Um, and they're created, you know, as the basis for sexism and further exploitation. And I think that trans and queer people, you know, completely turn um, the capitalist conception of sex on its head. Because when we express what our unique gender identities are, when we build queer families, it shows that the roles that we're supposed to adopt um, you know, based on our sex are false, right? They're imposed by uh, capitalism on us. They're not inherent parts of who we are. Um, and I think that women, queer people, trans people, and I think even men too, all face gender discrimination um, and retaliation when we when we challenge these roles, right? When we try and express who we are outside of what capitalism wants to put us into. And although, you know, like the oppression that we all face looks different. Um, I do think that we have a joint struggle, right? We have a joint struggle against sexism and fundamentally against um, capitalism. And I think in order to fight gender discrimination and win liberation for our communities, we need a joint struggle that gets to the root of where sexism comes from. And to me, that's capitalism. Um, and I think that the right wing claims that these laws that they're introducing will protect children. And I think that both Marie and um, Graciela spoke really well to this. Uh, so I don't 
feel like I need to get into it. But I do think that like the reality is that if you deny people's existence, it doesn't make us disappear, right? It just makes our lives more dangerous. Um, and as a trans man, you know, I'm a Marxist because I think that the best way to fight for trans liberation is by overthrowing capitalism and fighting for socialism. Um, and I totally agree with Marie. Um, you know, I don't want to spend the rest of my life trying to protect my, you know, already dwindling rights. Um, I think that we can have a beautiful and amazing world um, without gender discrimination where we have full access to, um, you know, high quality housing, good paying union jobs, uh, Medicare for all and gender affirming health care. Um, and I think that like that world begins with giving, um, you know, ordinary people the ability to organize what that looks like, right? And I think that we already see by the fact that, like, people are broadly rejecting these um, bills, that there would be support for ideas like this. Um, and I don't think that, like, winning socialism makes these ideas automatically go away. Um, but I do think that meeting people's, like, basic needs goes a lot farther for us to be able to begin to have those discussions and, like, debunk the really terrible ideas um, that capitalism tries to put in us about gender um, and about uh, sexuality. So I don't know. I think that we need to build a socialist world. I think it's, like, the best way that we can fight um, around these uh, uh, ideas. Um, and it takes a program and it takes a strategy. Um, and I think that like discussions like this are an important way of how we start to do that. Thank you so much, Emerson. I know that like you were talking at the start about how we need to be optimistic in times where it's very difficult to be optimistic. And I think that the world that you described is definitely something that, you know, we can put uh, kind of like to our faces when we do the difficult part, which is the fighting for that world. Uh, in a world that is consistently attacking our rights all the time. Um, but I want to thank you and also Marine Graciela. I think this was uh, a really important and interesting uh, discussion, like you said, Emerson, uh, in our kind of uh, journey of getting rid of this oppression from the roots of it and winning liberation that's not just allowing us to live in peace, but also allowing us to live with dignity and uh, allowing us to live our lives to the fullest and enjoy them and not just be ground down completely, constantly. So thank you so much for being here uh, and hopefully see you all soon. What a great episode, but now it's time for the shout out of the week. And this week we are shouting out the amazing victory of the JFK 8 Amazon warehouse in New York. Now, you may remember a couple months back, we had an episode about the Union Drive um, called Bamazon, which was in Bessemer, Alabama. Unfortunately, they were not able to unionize their warehouse, but that did not um, deter other Amazon workers from continuing with this momentum. And in New York, we saw the first Amazon warehouse successfully unionize, um, and they are called the Amazon Labor Union. This is a huge, huge upset to Jeff Bezos, which we love to see. Super inspiring that these workers were able to do it. Um, and yeah, so we wanna give them a shout out. Um, and you should check out our episodes that have been specifically talking about this wave of unionization that we're seeing. Like I said, the Bamazon one, but also we uh, talked to coffee workers in the US and Ireland who are unionizing um, their workplaces as well. Um, so thank you for tuning in and we will see you in two weeks.
This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. Let me fight! Let me fight! Let me fight! Solidarity! 